outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 411. And today in the show, I am joined by Ben Rising in Ohio whitetail bow hunting addict and we're going to be running him through a series of hypothetical and challenging deer hunting situations to figure out exactly what he would do all right welcome to the wired to hunt podcast brought to you by onyx today i'm joined by ben rising he's the founder and host of the whitetail edge hunting series that you can find on youtube and he was also a longtime member of the Drury Outdoors team previous to that. He's one of the most well-known and most consistent deer hunters in the country with a specific focus on hunting the biggest, oldest bucks. And he's doing that at a remarkable rate. So if, if you're in that part of your hunting journey where you want to level up your chances at that kind of deer, Ben is definitely a guy you can learn from. And for this one, I'm jumping back into the What Would You Do series that I kicked off last year. The basic gist of that, if you missed those earlier episodes, was that I am going to pull together a series of different hypothetical deer hunting situations and run these past Ben and then have him break down exactly you know, what he would do in those circumstances, how he would do it, why he would do these things, and really try to get a different angle on how Ben thinks about deer hunting and how he would approach deer hunting, you know, issues and challenges and situations so that maybe for us listening, we can learn a little bit more or learn in a different kind of way that becomes more actionable for us when we're actually out there in the field. So that's the game plan. It's a great conversation. I think you will be able to learn some things from Ben and I'm excited for you to be able to listen. So, uh, 
you know, without further ado, I'd say let's just get right into it. Here's my chat with Ben Rising. All right, now with me on the line, returning for a second appearance since I think it was 2015. Uh, ben, I think that's what you're saying. Uh, we got Ben Rising. Welcome back to the show, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. Yep, you were the first guy I ever did a podcast with. Man, I uh, I'm honored, and I'm I'm honored that you're back, that you were willing to come back onto the show, and uh, man, it's a pleasure. It's it's been something that over the years, I've of course followed your hunting exploits all over the country, and and you're just one of the most consistent guys out there that knows how to get the job done when it comes to deer hunting and targeting big mature bucks. So it's it's always something that our audience is going to be excited about. So uh, so thank you, Ben. And I want to yeah. I want to propose something to you. This idea, which is something that I've done with a handful of other really consistent, really great deer hunters, which is have a conversation today that's kind of framed around a series of hypothetical scenarios. So I want to pitch a bunch of different situations at you. I'll kind of paint a picture, and then I'm gonna just ask you to walk me through what you would do in that scenario. If this was happening to you, what would you do? How would you think through it? Why would you do certain things? Um, and then we'll just kind of play through a bunch of different things like that and see where it takes us. But uh, that's what yeah. I'm hoping to do. Does that sound, uh, does that sound good? Yeah, perfect, man. Sounds like a, a neat twist to yeah. the same old thing all the time. You know, it's it, it just a lot of the podcasts I have listened to. It's just the same thing about, scouting and everybody you know it's like the same thing that everybody talks about so this just should be interesting yeah that's exactly my thoughts we got to keep people on their toes right so so here's yeah. here's where i want to start then i want to jump right into things uh no softballs ben so uh <laughs> apologies here but right i i read the other day that you described the 2020 deer hunting season as your hardest fall in years one of your toughest years in a long, long time. So I want to know if we were to fast forward to the fall of 2021, let's say it's, I don't know, middle of the way through the season, let's say. So maybe we'll, we'll put that somewhere in November and you're in the same position again. It's mid-November and you're thinking to yourself, my gosh, this is the worst season I've had in 10, 15 years. What's going on? Why is it so tough? If you find yourself in that same position again, what would your advice be to yourself? What would you tell yourself, future Ben, in mid-November when you're having your hardest season in years? Don't pass the deer I passed. <laughs> <laughs> it's that easy, yeah. huh? Yeah, well, not necessarily, but, you know... I ate a tag in Illinois this year for the first time in many, many years. And that's because I passed a really good deer, solid, big, mature deer, trying to hunt a bigger deer, which, but that's what I do. You know, that's what I'm about. And so I'm not mad at myself. I, you know, I wouldn't have been happy with the deer if I would have shot it. It was a great big mature deer. I would have been, you know, I would have been happy, but I wouldn't, I would have felt like I let myself down because I'm a challenger. You know, I challenged myself. And I was trying to hunt a bigger deer that was in the area. It wasn't necessarily always on my farm, but he was in the area that I could hunt. So, you know, my cameraman wanted to push me out of the tree <laughs> when I passed the deer I passed. 
but I thought for sure I'd get back on that deer. But long story short, all both the deer, the one I passed and the one I was after, both got killed. So that's just the way the cookie crumbles, you know. Um, so that made it ultra tough for me because then I didn't have a deer to hunt in Illinois. Yeah. So that I wanted to shoot, I should say. And I won't settle. I'm not going to shoot what I call just a video buck to produce a show. I'm not going to do that. I'm not a guy that's going to sit there and be like, oh, look at this big mature buck. And it's really a three-year-old that everybody knows is a three-year-old. And you're just trying to make it up so you can look good. I'm, I'm not that guy. I'll eat my tag and talk about the story, show the footage of the deer we passed and, you know, build a hunt around that instead of actually harvesting an animal that I really am not going to be happy with. And there's nothing wrong with guys shooting three and a half year old deer if they're happy with them. You know, I mean, it's to each their own. It's just, as you know, I've killed a lot of big deer in my time. So I'm not happy with a smaller buck like that. I'm past that stage. And that's just what drives me to hunt big deer. I, I, I totally can relate to that. And I'm at a different level than you, but I've also found myself, you know, time, you know, year after year, changing my goals and adjusting and, and having that same conflict internally between, well, gosh, a few years ago, I would have shot that deer or a lot of other people would have shot that deer and they think I'm crazy. But, you know, if for some reason I feel like I'd be letting myself down by doing that, you know, why I don't need to settle just to make somebody else happy or just to make a TV show or something. So I, I can relate to that for sure. But, but here's my question. What? just say, you know, but also there was some other factors that made the season tough. You know, I mean, just, it seemed like deer weren't like, even in the late season, it seemed like the deer weren't going to the cornfields and different things like normal. And I talked to numerous guys that said the same thing, that the deer just didn't seem to be acting normal. Like they weren't going to the food sources in the cold, like typically in the past and you know, just, I don't know what it was. It didn't seem like we got the major cold, cold till after season was almost out. And that could have been some of the factor. You know, we kind of had a mild fall and winter, early winter. What do you do in a situation like that where the deer you're after get shot, you don't have something, or you don't have conditions that are going the way you wanted them to. Like, how do you just, how do you handle that mentally? Did you find yourself being like, okay, I got to totally reset and try something different, or I need to go somewhere new. Or did you say, no, keep steady to the course, keep doing what you know always works, and eventually things will go your way? Well, you know, so trail cameras have changed hunting forever. You know what I'm saying? Um, Some to the good, some to the bad, I feel. But, you know, I'm really big on using my cell cameras to help scout, especially out of state. You know, I killed a big buck early in Ohio, so that was out of the question. So any kind of hunting I needed to do, I had to drive hours, you know what I mean? And so I was really relying on my Spartan cameras to kind of tell me what was cooking, you know, on my, on the places that I could hunt in out of state, you know, and I had permission to hunt a place in Kentucky and, you know, maybe I should have just went and hunted but I didn't have anything showing up on any of the cameras. You know, I had a guy helping run cameras down there and nothing was showing up. And so same thing going on in Illinois. I had, I think I had 20 cell cameras or I mean 20 different cameras running and another guy helping check cameras because, you know, it's an eight, eight hour drive for me. And 
we just couldn't come up with a shooter. You know, now I'm not going to say that I couldn't go out there, sit in a stand and possibly a big deer come walking by that I, not every deer walks by your camera, but at that distance from home and taken away from work and my family, even though I am producing a show or trying to, it's not my living, you know? And so I have to weigh all those options and I just really couldn't pry myself to go spend a bunch of seat time in a tree stand after what I would false hope. You know, I'm big about recent information, giving me, telling me, okay, it's time, make your move. Cause a lot of the biggest deer I've killed, I've killed them in the first, first sit to the third sit, you know, right in there. And so I'm big about having that most recent information. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I I get I get that focus on that most recent information and the value there. But it brings up something else that I have heard about you, which which is an interesting maybe like yin to the yang of what you just described, where you're saying like you're really focused on that very specific recent information. Uh, but I've also heard you talk about how you can look at the big picture of things. And and there's a quote. I think this was on. So maybe share this on Instagram. You said, I'm just different. I think different. And this, sorry, this is a quote. I said, I'm just different. I think different. And I see the forest for the trees, reading the land and feeling it through my soul and the game I'm chasing. I can see how they use it. And it's something that I cannot teach. So if, if you had to teach someone how to see the forest for the trees, the way you do see the big picture of something, the way you do. How would you how would you try or what would be the very most single important thing you would try to convey to them to help get someone to see the woods the way you do? If there was just one step that they could start taking in that direction, what do you think that would be? Well, woodsmanship is huge. Um, and so one thing is, is is understanding animals, all animals and how animals use the lay of the land. Okay. I think that is, that is the book that is laid before us that tells you, okay, here I am. This is the canvas you have to work with or to hunt and to try to find that buck that's living in that canvas, that area. How is he going to use it? And the whole, before I even get to the farm that I'm going to hunt or look at or scout or, never been put on i'm looking at what i'm driving around to get to it what's what's over here what's on this neighbor what and the whole time i'm there i'm thinking of those things like whether i saw a standing bean field a quarter mile away or corn or you know cut off timber or water sources or it's just something that like it's like a checklist that just like in my head it's kind of like the wheel of fortune wheel going around ding 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 you know those things just resonate with me. And it's almost like when I step into a property, then I, I just try to like, I guess you, I say I try to become one. I don't know if you ever watched the movie and this is like, I tried to explain it to a guy the other day. Cause he asked me about that same post that I had made. And there's a movie out there uh, with Will Smith and he's a caddy back. And this is like a, early 2000s movie i want to say i think it was called the greatest game ever played or no it's not it's called the legend of bagger vance that's the movie yeah yeah but you got to watch that movie and it taught it shows where like 
the golfer that he's teaching how the field just blurs. Like, like he just sees it and he sees how he needs to hit the ball. Well, that's kind of how I think you need to approach when you get to a woods or a new property or something like that. You just kind of need to, to really see everything, you know, how the deer will travel on it, how they will move through it. And the, the woods will tell you that. I mean, whether the contour, how bucks will use it, how deer will use it. And there's some simple factors, you know, as far as like, if you know deer at all, or if you don't know deer, but you know, how mature deer will use areas that some deer won't use and how those will use areas that they take over the best bedding, the best cover, the closest cover to the food sources. The bucks are the biggest bucks I have found are always left to pick over, you know, the hardest stuff travel from and to and i've learned that a giant deer will walk a long ways to eat to feel safe when he goes to bed you know so yep what what are some other things like that when you talk about a couple things you found about how those big old deer travel or act or live differently than than the does a few of those rules of thumb are there any other things that jump out other than that yeah for sure i mean so I'm a very, I guess, I'm kind of a controversial little bit in a sense of like, I'm not saying that anybody's wrong, but, you know, I've deer hunted long enough and I've killed enough big deer that, and I think my wall speaks for itself. And I'm not, I say that in a humble way because I feel very blessed to be able to harvest the deer that I have, but it's not come by not working hard at it or noticing things or, you know, I don't listen to what everybody else tells me. You know, I'm kind of that guy. I'll go against the grain and figure it out, you know, because I taught myself how to bow hunt pretty much. Um, but one thing, like, you know, I, I read this all the time when guys are writing articles about deer hunting or scrapes or, you know, things to where it's like they say that all bucks, big bucks, will walk through the timber and they'll stay 50, 50 yards downwind of scrapes and check those and they won't go to those scrapes so that way they can keep moving and I have never seen a deer do that. I mean, I, I've shot, I shot the biggest deer this year that I shot standing in a scrape, black widow deer pea scrape. I mean, that's like, that's the whole idea of scrapes. You know, they want to be there to check it. They want to put their urine in it. They want to dominate it. They want to show everybody else, like you better get the heck out of my turf. Or they're also saying, Hey, I'm hot. I want to breed if you're a doe. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where they're communication and a buck can't communicate off a scrape from 50 yards away. You know, I've read this numerous times where guys say, set your stand 50, 60 yards downwind of, you know, scrapes and you're going to kill the biggest buck. I think that's complete BS. That's, that's just one, you know, um, well, I don't know if that makes sense to you. It, it does. And, and I actually, would say I've seen more of what you're describing than otherwise. Um, yeah. What other things have you seen that would make the typical status quo deer hunter uh, surprised? Any other um, things that would be controversial? Would say, yeah. Well, just like public land, you know, um, I don't hunt a lot of public land because I don't have to, you know what I'm saying? And I'm not knocking anybody that does because, Hey, that's the hardest stuff on the planet to hunt. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, 
but does that mean that deer on private land are any easier? Not necessarily, but I've, I've gone to Iowa and I've hunted a lot of public land. And when I go to Iowa, that's pretty much what I hunt. And I've killed some big deer on Iowa public and even in Ohio public that people think I've killed on private ground, but I've actually killed them on public land, but I don't want to give that up because, you know, then you got people, you know, horning in on you. But I have found that a lot of these really big deer on public ground are a lot closer to where the people are than what you think. Um, you know, I think those deer that live on public have become survivors in an instance of learning how to live and adapt in that environment. And they know by being able to do that, it's to keep tabs on the people. <laughs> I mean, I've killed a couple deer on public land. Some I've gone really deep. It's just, it's a process of knowing, you know, you just got to figure it out when you're there. A couple of big deer I've killed really deep on public, and then a couple I've killed within 150 yards of a parking space. So it's just a matter of doing your homework and kind of learning that spot. And sometimes you do got to put your time in, you know, in those areas. Like typically when I'm out of state and I'm grinding like that, I'm not killing the biggest deer within the first one or two sits. Now at home where I live and I've got the ability to monitor those deer and cameras and know what's going on through scouting. Yes. I don't hunt, you know, until I make my move, but out of state, I grind, you know, and I'm forever scouting and, you know, figuring out what those deer are doing and moving until I know, okay, this is the pattern. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good segue to, to kind of get into a hypothetical hunting season. Then let's, let's say it's the night before opening day in your home state of Ohio. What are you doing on bow season Eve? How are you doing it and why? Like, are you doing some kind of scouting or preparation that night before, or is that the night to spend with the family or what does that last few hours of the last day before hunting season look like? Well, the last few years, it's been pretty uh, boring because I haven't had a deer I wanted to hunt, you know, right off the rip, um, which, you know, stinks because I have killed, you know, I killed a 183 a few years back opening day, you know, but, um, you know, typically, if you're on a deer like that, if you've done your homework, there's not a whole lot you got to do the night before, you know, other than maybe you want to shoot your bow and, you know, you got the willies in your gut. But, you know, one thing I noticed that people do a lot of, and I, it just blows my mind, and I'm not saying it's completely wrong, but for me, it's it's almost like kissing your sister on the, on the lips if <laughs> you're, uh, you know, if you're like, going to go hunt opening morning of bow season and you're going to go hunt your buck in the morning in you know the first part of october or end of september i mean you might as well just go run through the woods with a dinner you know with a bell and just ring it because i mean i just think that's nuts now i know people have killed some deer like that early you know but for the you know, especially guys that maybe bait a lot. I know that there's been some deer killed in the mornings like that. They may have a deer pattern that direction, but you know, typically 
morning, early season like that, I'm not, I don't even step foot in the woods till it's evening, you know, hunting afternoons or things like that. And then if I don't have a deer doing what I want him to do early season, I just don't hunt. And it's hard, but because I, you know, I want to hunt, but I don't hunt. I'll go shoot does or something. Yeah. Now, now I totally understand the the reason to avoid mornings and favoring evenings. I under, I know that argument, uh, but there's probably some people that maybe don't. Can you explain why you think those morning hunts are so risky early in the season, and why those evening hunts are a, typically a better option? Well, what I've just noticed is, you know, especially just monitoring my own trail cameras you know, those big mature deer are already back to bed, you know, they're, unless you get a phase where like, maybe you've got a little extra cool morning early and maybe like, uh, you know, the right moon phase where the moon is falling late, you know, and it coincides with say a red moon or whatever. Well, then, you know, you might get a deer on his feet a little later in the morning right there, but you still got to get into those spots. And I think the intrusion factor that you're making and the scent that you're leaving around, you're just minimizing, you're maximizing your, you know, scent and everything to set that deer off, you know, which you want to keep that at a minimum. So, you know, that's why it's like, okay, I would rather take that, those steps. If I'm going to hunt early, I want to do it in the evening when I know he's getting itchy and wants to get up and get a drink, take a dump and head to his field, you know, or wherever he wants to eat. And, you know, that's, I just feel you're better off to catch them then because you're not walking in, bumping them out of their beds. You know, you're hunting an edge typically somewhere or a staging area from a bedding to a food source, like on an acorn flat or, you know, a little patch of grass or something that's close to a thicket that they're, they're walking through to get to a bean field or something. You know, I just feel the early morning stuff too early in the season before they really start, you know, feeling their oats is just really telling them, Hey, I'm going to hunt you. Yeah. And you know, a lot of guys, I hear the story all the time, man, he was there early, but all year he was there and then early. And then now he's gone. I don't know what's going on. I mean, I've hunted him a lot. I just never see him. Well, it's probably why you're not seeing him because yep. you're hunting him a lot. There you go. <laughs> you know? so, I mean, I hate to say it like that and sound like a smarty pants because you know, we all want to hunt, you know, and I, I don't want to tell young guys or whatever, that like, Hey, don't hunt at all. You know, don't have fun. Cause it's all about killing big deer, but you know, maybe try to just, if you're on a big deer and you really want to kill a big deer, maybe hunt somewhere else for some does so you can get your hunt time in and get the, get the edge off, you know, yeah, um, hunt somewhere else where it's not going to mess up the deer you're really trying to kill. Yeah. I've always thought that was a good way to go about it. Um, now here's something that I always struggle with in balancing, you know, keeping pressure low while also getting enough shots at that buck. Let's say it's that opening day situation again, or the first couple of days of the season. And you do have a buck you want to kill, but you don't have daylight photos, or you, you haven't seen him moving in daylight yet. So you know he's there, but you don't have that MRI that tells you, oh, it's go time. But at the same time, it's the first day of the season, or the second day of the season. And you know that every day after that, there's going to be more and more pressure on that deer from other hunters. There's the chance that things could happen. How do you think about that? Will you go in there and hunt opening day because it's opening day, even if you don't have that intel that says he's daylight? Uh, or how would you? What would you do? No, I don't hunt at all. I mean, if I don't have any daylight pictures of him, 
before have seen him in daylight in an area that I want to hunt, I absolutely don't hunt because I look at it like this, let your neighbors help you because they're, they're going to be hunting. The guys that don't take it as serious as you or I, they will be hunting and they'll be tipping that deer off. And he's slowly going to start shrinking his core to the area that he's not being messed with. And that's going to just tip the odds in your favor. Now, would your answer change at all if I told you that opening day or the second day of the season, there was a big cold front hitting? Mm, not necessarily. I mean, it would have to be, things would have to be really right, I guess. But, because I've, I've, you know, I'm not a giant fan of cold fronts. You know, everybody says, man, I got a cold front coming. I'm going to get out there. And I, I've heard it so many times, like, man, I just didn't see the deer movement I thought I would see. Well, I honestly believe that sometimes in the early season, when you get too much of a cold front, it kind of shocks the deer to a sense. Now, there's times in October when you get a nice, cool front moving through that really drops the temperature 20 degrees. If you're sitting on a food source like a, a food plot or a bean field or something that you can get in and out of with great access, absolutely hunt it. You know what I mean? Because anything can happen. And I've seen it happen. And you might get pictures those nights if you weren't hunting. But you don't want to hunt those spots and it not happen if you don't have an access, an egress strategy to get out of there. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that's the biggest thing. You start tipping those deer off on the way out. Maybe once you can get away with it, but if you keep trying it and it's not working, it's going to get tougher. Yeah. So I'd say, yeah, you can do it, but make sure that, and it does work well in those early Octobers, you know, because an October can turn into a Bucktober real quick if you get the right weather patterns. Um, but I do believe that you need to know that the deer is there, that he's close to where you want him to be and that he might use that secluded food plot or the edge of that field or something, you know, and you can get out of there if he doesn't show. So you're not tipping him off in the dark. Yeah. Even. All right. Now what about the reverse situation? What if you did have a daylight sighting of him or a daylight trail camera of him, maybe two, three days before opening day, but it was, it was cool. It was pretty nice conditions when he was moving in daylight then, but now opening day arrives and it's hot. And maybe it's just it's just hot and humid. It's a, just a nasty. It's kind of the day that you don't typically think, or at least maybe I, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I would not think is a great deer hunting day. It's 75 or 80 and humid. Um, would you go and hunt that subpar weather day because you saw him moving two days or three days beforehand, or would you say, nope, it's different conditions now. I'm not going to risk it. Yeah, probably not because deer. This is one thing I've noticed. Deer feel a lot like people do. I mean, I just feel that way. Like, you know, the days that I look out that window or the way the weather feels, other than the rut, I think deer, our internal systems almost feel a lot alike, I think, as far as, you know, that whole just like, man, this is a gloomy, low-pressure day, it's early season, or it's blazing hot, and I'm just going to lay in this shady creek bottom till nightfall you know what i mean so i guess i just don't see the point in having to risk risk those things when you know he's going to be on his feet sooner or later at the right time okay let's let's say you do go hunting let's say the conditions look good and you had 
some kind of recent information that this buck was out there and moving in daylight. It's September 28th, maybe. The Ohio season's open, and you went in there, and you set up on a great evening location. You're close to some kind of food source. You know where this buck's probably bedded, or you've got a decent hunch on what you think he's going to do, and you feel like it's a killing night. You're set up. And then you hear a noise, you look to your right, and on the other side of the neighboring property, so across the property line, maybe let's say he's 100 yards away from you, you happen to be within sight of a property line, and you see another hunter coming in on his side of the line, making noise, blowing scent all over, and he then walks out of sight. Do you stick it out in that location? Or do you pull the plug and just bail and try to minimize the damage or try to find a different spot? Uh, that can be a tough one. I mean, you know, if the deer is bedded close by to you, you and you're hunting close to his bed and that guy come through there and you're pretty positive that the deer while in his bed probably heard that fella or the commotion or it might have set him off, then yeah, I would probably bail. But if the deer's farther back where you think they're coming from, you know, on this travel route, because obviously you're hunting a travel route or you wouldn't be sitting there to where you think this deer's going to come through in early season in daylight. So you got to be hunting somewhere where you feel confident um, that he's at the cave. You just have to make that determination whether, you know, if he's too close and why waste your time to get out of there and let things settle down for a while, try yeah. again. Would your answer be any different if we changed the date and said it was November 7th instead? Absolutely, yeah. Because when, when you just start getting bucks feeling their oats and, you know, they start hitting their scrapes in daylight, especially in the mornings. Like when you start getting bucks working scrapes and they're hitting those scrapes on the way back to bed in late October – those are magical times to hunt. I've killed three booners on October 23rd. Now, that ought to tell you something. I mean, October 23rd. And I've killed two of them in the mornings on October 23rd. So, in both scenarios, have always been when those bucks are at that point where they're cruising their territory a little bit at night. They're going back to bed later. They're marking their scrapes. They're letting all the other bucks know that they're there and they're starting to push off the subordinate bucks because they're locking down their major breeding area and they're the dominant buck right in that core. So when you get that situation going on, it's time, it's time to make moves on a deer like that. You know, it's time to be in the stand because you're going to see them. But, um, but now so that's when weather can really help. Yeah. But basically, if I'm reading you right, you're saying once you're in that pre-rut to rut time frame, late October into November, you don't care that the other guy came through? Like you're saying it's all right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I guess the thing is, is you're going to get away with a lot more at that point because deer kind of getting a little bit, you know what I mean? They're starting to lose a little bit of especially when they're full-blown lockdown run, you know, when they're in that November phase where they're in that trance, there's not a whole lot that's bothering those deer, you know? So that, 
last week of October time frame, yeah, they're still on their on alert pretty good, but they're doing their thing and they're roaming, but they're not going to be easy. But I do think you're going to get away with more towards the run if you would early season when all they care about is eating. You know, when they start thinking about the breeding phase and the hot does and where they're at, they really let their guard down. Just like normal males do. <laughs> yeah yeah apt to make a few more mistakes uh yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah going to that bar sounds good yeah exactly but it really wasn't one more drink one more drink <laughs> um all right w- what about this it's it's a tricky scenario that a lot of guys and girls have to deal with in certain parts of the country and i know certain parts of ohio are like this i think you've you've dealt with some of this and that is hunting in areas of big timber um when you're in stretches that have a lot of hardwood timber a lot of oaks let's let's say hypothetically that again we're talking october still um and for whatever reason you're stuck hunting one chunk of land and this chunk of land doesn't have big ag fields doesn't have food plots it's mostly timber how do you go about picking out your focus areas in a situation like that? How do you isolate a few key spots when it isn't as simple as saying, well, obviously the great big cut cornfields right here and all the deer want to head towards that. What would your approach be if I dropped you on a new piece of big timber like that? Well, so one thing I look for is uh, logged off areas. Anything that's, you know, maybe had some clear cutting done or some recent logging activity in the past year or two because there's going to be a lot of food right there. Um, that's going to be one of your major food sources. So those edges, those transition zones between logged off areas and bigger open hardwoods is major uh, place to find deer sign. Um, great place, great places to figure out what the deer are doing. And you're going to start seeing their scat, manure, you know, things like that, buck sign, rubs, anything that, you know, they're doing, you're going to start seeing it in those areas that they're spending some time in. Another thing is a water source, because if those deer are in that big giant timber, you know, they've got to still drink. And so, okay, some springs or, you know, is there a creek? Where's the creek that they're going to be going to eat at if they're bedding up on these hills or in this clear cut? You know, try to just pinpoint things that can start narrowing down the puzzle. Where's the oak flats? the acorns are falling on this year or are none falling and do you need to look for you know a different food source such as the browse and you know different kinds of shrubs and things like that that they might be feeding on you know this uh little berry patches anything apple trees so again it's just a different you kind of take that whole say you're looking at a 500 acre block and that's all you got to hunt which know we deal with a lot of that in ohio well those are the scenarios that you just start looking for you start narrowing them down you know and uh, i think eventually walking to them kind of spots and looking at them will lead you to some sightings or some pictures or you know some success pretty you know sooner than later if you were in that situation would you hunt more days 
in a situation like that where it's not quite as easy to, or at least if it's a new property, it's not as easy to already pinpoint like exactly where you think these kill spots are and you're kind of prospecting still. And uh, in that kind of situation, would a quantity approach be the right way? Absolutely. Because like, you know, if you're talking a lot about like, say guy traveling, you know, and he doesn't live there or, you know, things like that he doesn't have a chance to run trail cameras and figure that you've got to hunt i mean like when i'm hunting out of state i hunt every day no matter what i mean because i got to maximize my stand time but i try to be smart about the winds and where i'm hunting and where i think those deer might be doing if i haven't seen them already what could they be doing that i'm not seeing them and you know there's nothing more frustrating though than getting nighttime pictures of those deer and knowing that they are there and then you can't lay eyes on them in the daytime because sometimes they're just nocturnal, you know, to a degree until they're just completely ready. I mean, I got a farm that I call it the night walker farm because I feel like those deer just do not move in the daylight until it's rut. I mean, like almost full blown rut. Then they start, you know, and then they'll be on their feet pretty much the rest of the season a little bit. You can catch them in daylight, but man, that early time, that farm is, brutal what do you do if that happens while you're there so you've got a your week time period and for whatever reason it seems like they're still on that night walking kind of pattern do you just wait it out and hope or do you change your tactics at all go to the local gas station and pay four kids to push it out and you sit at the other end i mean i i don't i honestly can't give you that answer Because I don't think there's anything you can do other than, like, bumping them up out of their bed, you know, getting in there and stirring them up, you know, and trying to catch them coming back. I've never been a big fan of hunting that way. I know some guys do, and it works. Um, I'm not saying that it don't work, because I know it works. But I do believe that there's a time where you could do something like that, maybe stir some things up. But you're also taking that chance that if you're not successful – and that's the only farm you got to hunt for five days, you could really be shooting yourself in the foot too, you know? So I think in my mind, that's kind of like a, just the way that I hunt, that's like my last resort ditch effort is trying to pull the dupe on a buck by bumping them out. Yeah. You know, I'd rather try, I try to plan my hunts more based upon the timing of the year when I leave out of state or recent information saying that, it's early season, but I got this buck coming to a food source all the time. We're using this water hole or this Creek crossing daily, you know, then, yeah, I mean, I'll make my move, you know, used to be, we used to have to use track catchers to make that stuff, take a rake to the woods and rake out a trail and just figure out what trails we're using because we didn't have cameras when I was younger. You know what I mean? Yeah. Used, used to tie strings across the trails and, you know, not tie them tight, but when the deer would come through the trails, they break the string with their chest and set the timer off on those trail timers. And it'd tell you, okay, at like 8.35, something walked down the trail, but you had no <laughs> idea what it was, you know. The good old days right there, man. Um, yeah. That's- is there anything, you know, trail cameras are pretty... I mean, they're standard fare for almost everyone these days. And you've been using them for years and years and years now. 
But is there anything substantially different with how you use them today than maybe five years ago? Have you had any kind of like aha moments that have really changed things there? Or is it, do you kind of have your tried and true method and just stick with that? Well, um, you know, one thing I've definitely learned is like, especially if you're just using regular card cameras that, you know, aren't relaying pictures to your phone app or something. You know, I used to, I just couldn't resist, man. I'd have to go check that camera. You know, and I'm going back to the days of when you had 35 millimeter film and you could only get 35 pictures on a roll, you know, and you'd take it to the drugstore and just couldn't wait to get your film back and you're just wasting all that money. But, you know, even then I would check my cameras too often. And so I've learned to be a lot more patient in those areas where I have cameras like that, especially in, the, I, and I mean this more or less in the off season. Don't, just don't be going in there all the time, you know. And that's where cell cams, you know, some people are like, well, I can't afford a Spartan camera. In my personal opinion, you can't afford not to have one, you know, because of the time that they save you, the amount of gas they save you from running around, looking at, you know, checking your cameras and all that stuff. And the, the information that they can relay you can save you so much time and effort and intrusion on a deer. Yeah. You know, and let's not kid ourselves this day and age, there's not less hunters, you know, at least not in my area. You know, I've watched my area completely change in the last 10 years. I mean, everybody and their brother is sitting on a corn pile on 20 or 40 acres with a box blind, you know, and a crossbow hanging out the window. And I mean, it's just, it's brutal. What, I mean, you, you've got to know what your deer are doing. Yeah. How do you, how do you adjust to that? What have you had to do differently now than you did 10 years ago to account for all that new pressure around you? Well, again, I've got to know what my deer are doing, but I don't hunt as much. I mean, I hunted one time in Ohio this year. I killed my buck the first night I hunted him, and I didn't sit him till October 16th. Wow. Or 14th, I mean. The season was in two and a half weeks before I even sat but I killed him the first night. And what made you sit that night? Why was that the night that you decided to finally strike? Because he had hit his, so I put some black widow mock scrapes in that area of his bedding. And I knew that he was, I knew the pressure was going to put him in that farm. And that's what it did. I knew that I knew he was getting pounded on the neighbors, both sides. And, and he was, I mean, and, uh, just, nothing against how they hunted just that they wanted to hunt you know what i mean and i get it but that's how i killed that deer because it, it actually benefited me to the point that i could back off of him and just be patient because i knew he was old enough and he knew the deal and i knew everybody else was baiting the snot out of him and he'll, he'd use their bait but he wasn't a deer that went to bait a lot in the daylight and so i just kind of had him on them scrapes and the second that I knew he was feeling just a little bit too comfortable hitting scrapes going back in the morning and then in the evening a little bit before he'd go do his thing. I was like, I gotcha. And on the 13th, I had him standing on that scrape, showed him on the 14th at the same scrape. And that was daylight on the 13th he showed up? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, man. And that was a card camera because where that, I couldn't get service right there because it was such a deep bottom 
that I couldn't get cell service on a cell cam there. So I literally had to use a, a regular Spartan camera that just, you know, took pictures. And uh, I had to go in on feet to check that. But I was waiting. You know, he had actually been on that camera in daylight two days before that even. Um, so I knew he was right. I'm like, he's so comfortable right now. And I had already hung the stand for this whole situation. I had done that, you know, in September. And um, so I was ready for it. So all I had to do was slide in and hunt. It was risky walking in because, you know, it's two hillsides looking down at you. Um, and the thermals were a little bit tough, but I knew I had to try it. And, you know, I'm pretty big about my scent control and using the base system for illusion and all that. And, and along with some black widow deer pee at the cover scent, spraying it in the air every so often. And I literally had those bedding downwind of me on this hillside and I, you know, they, they started to come down the hill. They busted me for a split second. Then I started spraying the urine in the air again. Cause even with, even before they couldn't quite tell what I was, but I've really found that mixture of illusion system phase and the deer urine together. I can almost beat any deer. Now. It's pretty incredible. And it's on film. I mean, I literally show you these deer laying down. And then a little while later, that buck comes out of his bedding area and pushes some does around. He's just, a, it's in a staging area. He pushes some does around and then he finally, I grunt to him a little bit because he was grunting at some does. So all I did was grunt to him two times, made it act like I was messing with the doe back there because there was some younger bucks around. And I mean, he instantly just turned and grunted. Scraped got mad, started working up his scrape, jumped up in the air on his hind legs, raking the tree. As soon as he came down, I slammed him. Man. Gotta love it when it works out that way. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm just saying, you know, those are scenarios that, you know, people just have to learn to, to be patient, you know, and I hunt, hunt smarter, not harder. Yeah. You know, in, in pressured areas, you know, that's what I've had to learn to adapt to in Ohio with so much hunting pressure around me now. Yeah. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling 
with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Now, you've kind of alluded to this earlier um, that some of these things change a little bit when you get into the rut. These deer will deal with pressure a little bit differently. They're a little distracted thinking about other stuff. So I want to I want to get into a few rut related issues or questions, but I first want to understand your process of just preparing to hunt for the rut. So imagine it's, I don't know, November 1st, you're off on your rut trip somewhere, or, or maybe you're hunting local, but whatever, it's November, the rut's on, the alarm clock goes off in the morning. What does your pre-hunt morning routine look like? And this is a weird question, but like, what are you, when are you getting up? What do you do before heading out to hunt? What are the things you're thinking about? What are the things you're making sure you don't forget to pack? What are the nitty-gritty details of of everything you do leading up to that all-day sit or that whatever the big hunt is you have for the day? Um, what's that look like for you? Well, you know, I mean, obviously, if we're hunting rut in the mornings, you know, we're getting up a good, you know, good hour and a half before it's time to be where we want to be. You know, and if we've got drive time, it could be more. But if we're on the farm or close to it, you know, I want to be in there a good 20 minutes before daylight at least. And then there's spots that times that I'll walk in in the daylight, like, because I want to be able to see the field. If I got to cross an open field, I want to be able to see instead of just blowing across it. Um, but I always make sure that I've got my deer urine that I use as a cover spray. I've got the phase foam, which is my favorite thinking thing in the world when it comes to an ascent elimination product or a scent cover, you know, to help you minimize scent. And I'm not trying to sound like a plug here for my sponsors, but we truly believe in these products and we've proven to them, proven it over and over again on film that these products work. And this has become like my ritual now. And, you know, obviously having your clothes as clean as you can keep them, whether they're hung outside or in a scent free totes, whatever you want to do. That's to each his own, but I typically just hang mine out if I can in an area where they're not going to get soaking wet or frosted or whatever, but um, you know, boots clean, things like that. Just trying to be as minimal as you can packing my, you know, black rack, a grunt call, things like that. You got to have those kind of things in the rut because you never know. Many times I've set up where I thought I needed to be and the deer might be chasing a doe or cruising and he might be, cause when the rut comes on, you don't know what they're going to do a hundred percent. They may be 75 yards away and would have been coming there, but might've got distracted cause he got a whiff of something. Well, if you've got your rattling antlers or your grunt call, you still might be able to get him turned and have him come your way. So you got to make sure you have that kind of stuff. Um, you know, making sure your bow is in shooting shape. I always check my strings and all that before I walk to the woods making sure I don't, you know, and I carry two releases. 
because we've all left our release somewhere and walk and stand and go, son of a gun. Nothing worse. You know? Yeah, we've all done it. And so I carry two releases now in my pocket, and I'm I'm a fan of Cobra releases. That's what I shoot. So I always got two in my bag, you know. Um, that's just about it. You know, I mean, I, I don't know that I do anything crazy special. I just, you know, try to be prepared for what I think I might need that day, you know. I'm what definitely, a- first thing I'm doing is looking at weather and wind, mm. you know, because making sure things don't change on me. I look at the hour by hour. I want to know what that pressure is that day, if it's high pressure, low pressure, you know, what time is the wind switching, because I'm already planning for the evening sun if the morning hunt doesn't work out, you know. So I, I try to adapt and just be like a chameleon and be very versatile and knowing what's going to be coming. Yeah. When do you typically make your decision of where you're going to hunt the next morning? Is that like the night before you have a plan and then you just double check the weather in the morning or are you uh, kind of a last minute gut decision once it's just before time to walk in? Like what's that process look for look for you? Uh, well, mostly it's, it's kind of, it's always wind oriented location of deer that I'm after, you know, what has he been doing and what do I think he's going to do? you know, um, or what has the most recent information told me that he's done type of thing. So those factors all come into play. Very seldom do I just blind hunt, you know, like I'm just going to go sit this stand and hope for the best. You know, I don't typically do that. Now I will at times when I'm out of state, you know, cause sometimes you just have to, um, but usually if I'm doing that, I'm sitting on an edge somewhere trying to scout but I'm also hunting at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm just kind of observing and seeing if I can pick something up that may be a big factor, you know, that might really help me, uh, you know, put the, put the pin in one. So I get that. That's happened a lot. You know, when I go out of state a lot, especially on new ground, I like to observe. I'll hang an observant, a stand and observant position where I do believe I can get a shot at a deer also, or call to one, but I'm also not just blowing in there and blowing the farm up right off the bat. I want to be able to see what's going on. I was going to ask you about that, that first day of an out of state hunt during the rut. And and you maybe just answered it, but I'll just ask a little more specifically on day one of that seven day rut hunt or whatever. Let's say you haven't been there yet that fall. Does day one, a scouting day or is it, you know, first thing in the morning you're hunting in a prime spot, you know, what does that very first day breakdown look like? Well, so for me, I'm going to base even that on like say cameras that I may not have in that general area, but like if it's just pretty much across the Midwest and social media saying the deer are rolling, I'm going to hunt, you know, and I'll go to a good funnel, a good spot in between. And I'm going to hunt all day. If we can get away with it, you know, you just got to put your time in, in those instances, you know, there's a hunt we did back in 2016, uh, it was called scrape master. And I hunted that deer six, six or seven days before we killed him. Um, but I came to the realization that he wasn't even on the farm for like the first six days. You know, he just wasn't there. He had been there and then he disappeared. He went somewhere and then he came back and I killed him. So but if I wouldn't have been hunting, I wouldn't have known he came back because I killed him the day that he came back pretty much. Um, you know, but 
during the rut, I mean, you got to put the pressure on because that's the most magical time of year. That's when they're moving. And you may run into a deer that you've never even known existed just because you didn't have pictures of him at that time of the year doesn't mean that a buck from two miles away not might not be coming through that timber, you know, and going going to go through that pinch that you're hunting. Yeah. I think if I were to oversimplify the types of places people hunt during the rut, you could put them into one of two oversimplified categories. You could say people are either going to hunt some kind of pinch point or they're going to hunt around some kind of doe bedding or feeding area, like a doe hotspot. Let's just to keep it really, really simple. If I had to force you to pick one of the two, you had to spend your whole rut vacation on one of those two. You can't have both. <laughs> you got to pick one. Which would you pick and, and why would that be your preference? I'm going to hunt. I'll pick doe bedding areas are great, but I would rather pick a good known travel route funnel because I feel I'll maximize the amount of different bucks I'll see. And typically in the funnel situations, I can get into them and out of them the way I set them up to hunt them multiple, multiple times that it's not tipping the deer off to where if you're hunting a doe bedding area and you got all them hoe bags noses around, then you're going to start tipping them off and they may switch up what they're doing too. Or they're going to be busting your butt all the time, winding you, blowing, driving you crazy, and it could just ruin your whole hunt. Yeah. That, that makes sense? sense. Yeah, it does. You said the way you set these spots up in these pinch points, is there anything, like, what do you mean by that? What uniquely do you do when you're setting up on a travel funnel like this that makes it work so well? Well, I just, I, I got to have the right way to get into them. You know, I really plan that out whether it's a ravine, a ditch, a creek, you know, I look for those funnels. There may be five funnels on a farm, but I'm going to hunt the one that has the best access for me to get in and out of it. That's the one I'm going to pick, and that's where I'm going to spend my time. Okay. Not saying I won't hunt the other ones, but I like to really not, especially if I've got to be on that farm, and that's the only place I can hunt for a while, I really try to really not let those deer know that I'm hunting them. Yeah. Now here's a tricky thing with, with some funnel spots like this is, and now I, I know trail cameras could solve the problem here. So let's, let's say for some reason we're not getting trail camera data. That's going to push us one way or another, but here's a, a challenge sometimes when you're hunting a spot like this, where you know that a buck should travel through this funnel eventually, but he hasn't yet. Like how much time, will you give a spot like this that just screams a rut travel corridor, but you hunt all day on day one and there's nothing. And then you say, well, you know, it's been day one, but I know if I spend enough time here, he'll come through. And so you go out there the next day and you know, you didn't spook anything. So you hunt it again. Uh, and then he still doesn't show up. Will you, will you go a second day, a third day in a spot that just looks so great? Or do you say, nope, I got to change it up. That's going to depend on what else I'm seeing. You know what I'm saying? If I'm not seeing any deer, then no, I'm not going to keep doing it. If I'm seeing deer moving, does, bucks, things like that, then I still know it's only a matter of time. He's probably with the doe, and he's going to break free eventually, and he's going to be coming through those spots. Like, I try to find those travel pinch points that, that lay between doe bedding areas. Those are my key. That's what I love to find. Yeah. Yeah, that's ideal. So, 
So that way I can maximize, you know, the activity of how many places they're trying to cruise through for the day. Yep. Let's, let's say you're in a spot like that. You, you found this dynamite funnel, you know, it works out well for your access and your exit. You know that there have been deer coming through here. It's just a matter of time till that right buck does. You're sitting out there. It's November three, four, five, something like that. And the big buck you're after steps out, but he gets downwind of you and he smells you and he just, he doesn't hightail it out, but he smells it and he's like, nope. And he's gone. Do you immediately move to a totally different place? Do you stay right where you're at? Do you adjust a little bit? What do you do in that situation? Well, if he was with a hot doe, you might be able to tweak it or stick it out because if she comes, if she didn't get you, chances are she's going to come back through there and he'll forget about it. But if, if his mind wasn't on a doe and he still got you like that, chances are he's going to be done right there for a little bit, in my opinion. Because a good chance the next time he comes through there, he's going to go around sniffing and trying to find your tracks and what you're doing, you know. Yeah. So that's that's my take on that. And, you know, one thing I tell people to do if they want to learn something about a really big deer or deer in general, just any deer, when you go in to hang a tree stand, take an extra camera with you and hang it on the spot you just hung that tree stand. When you walk out, you'll be surprised at what follows your trail to that tree stand. Hmm. think they they're they're gonna scope off that scent huh well i am not saying that they know what exactly it is i'm just saying it's it's interesting to see how deer deer are curious not necessarily saying that deer smart enough to be like oh i'm gonna go sniff out and find this ladder and i know this is where ben's hunting it's just they know somebody was in their area you know what i mean yeah and they're, they're searching it out. They want to know what was going on. You know, it's just like if you're not a smoker and you're sitting in your, you know, you come home, you walk in your house, and you smell a little bit of smoke or a cigarette butt, you see a cigarette butt laying somewhere, you know something's up. Yeah. You know, well, that's, that's how deer are. Yeah. You know, they're the same way. You, you can't enter their world and them not know it very often. So, so what's the buffer then? If if this happened, you're out there, he wins you, uh, he he moves off in the other direction, and you think to yourself, okay, I need to adjust because he's he's not with a doe right now. He's he's kind of mm-hmm. on to me. How much of an adjustment do you think you need to make to still to be in the game? Because this is a great spot. You so you still think like, man, they want to come through here, but he smelled me. Is he gonna? Are you gonna totally just cross that whole funnel off, or will you make like a eighty yard adjustment? and hope that he'll still come through, but skirt where you were. Yeah. I mean, he could still be using it. I mean, honestly, I mean, he, he might come right back through there in the next morning. Like, like it was nothing. You just don't know for sure, but I'm not going to be, especially if they see you or they're like almost pin pinpoint you. I think you need to switch it up at least 30, 40 yards. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but I think it depends on really how boogered they got, you know, I mean, if he just kind of tucked his tail and got out of there and he just wasn't sure, I mean, he could just think, you know, it's a neighbor fixing a fence or something. You know, he just got a whiff of a human. But if he comes back through there again and gets you in the same spot again, yeah, you're done. 
you know, you need to scrap it for a little bit yeah, and then try to pick him up somewhere else. Think about where he was headed or going to try to pick him up there. Okay. So here's a different kind of curveball to that kind of day. You're out there and you see the buck you're after, but he's locked on a doe and he follows that doe off away from you. And you know that let's say it's in the afternoon and he's heading towards the general direction of a food source. So in your head, you're thinking, man, it's, it's really unlikely that he's going to leave that doe and come back to where I am, but there's still two hours of daylight left or something like that. And you're only after this one buck. Do you just say at, well, that's my evening and I'm going to sit it out just in case, but I'm not going to do anything. Or will you get aggressive and say, all right, I'm going to try to loop way around and get ahead of him. Or do you do you do anything in that case? What what do you do? Well, I guess it just depends on, you know, how locked on he might be with that doe or, you know, if he, if he's in full in love mode and just glued to her, chances are he's not coming back through there unless she does. You know what I mean? And there's a real good chance she's not even going to go to an open area when she's feeling that way. You know, because she doesn't want to get harassed by a bunch of other bucks either. And so typically when those deer are in that, in that mood, they're not getting out of the timber a whole lot. You know, they're going to be, so unless you know where there's another good bedding area or an area that maybe you can pick them up, you know, I'm not saying you might as well just finish out the hunt and just see how it goes. You know what I mean? Cause you're already there. You've already walked in, laid your scent. You might as well just hunt it out and maybe she'll come back through or, type thing you know what i mean and he'll follow or maybe they'll be done and he'll come back through looking for another doe that he was that he saw earlier in the day what does that mean for your future for like the next day so when you see a buck that really seems to be locked on to that doe i know in historically for me oftentimes i've seen these deer will really kind of shrink the area they travel. And I've always thought to myself that I've got a day or two window where that buck's going to be right in this little zone. And, and I do things differently when I see something like that versus when I see a buck just cruising around. Um, what would you do in that case where, okay, he moved off. He's very locked on. Maybe you, you saw him breed her maybe. And then they just walked off. What's the next day look like for you? I'm going to be right there again, because if I saw him there once, you're going to see him there again most likely. Yep. Same stand or would you adjust 50 yards based no. off what they did or something like no. that? No, I, I mean, usually I would hunt the same stand. I mean, I, you know, unless the wind's going to be sketchy, you know, then if you need to make an adjustment, you can, but that same general area, there's a reason they were there the first time you seen them. That's why they were going through there. So trust your gut. He's going to do it again, or she's going to do it again. And he's going to follow or, Again, he's going to lose her and be back through. I mean, I'm I'm okay with hunting those kind of spots multiple times, you know, because I do believe that's if you know it's the right spot, those are the places to hunt, you know. Yeah. One more uh, locked on a doe situation. Is there ever a situation where you would try to call a buck off of a doe, or I mean, do you think it's realistic at all to call a buck off a doe that he seems to be locked on? Well, I'll, I'll always test them. You know what I mean? I'll throw them a call or two and just see how they feel and how they react to it. 
and how they react will tell me, okay, just don't push it or, okay, maybe I can get a little more aggressive because last year in Kansas, I called one off a doe. Um, a few years ago, I, I killed a 215 that was, you know, with the doe, but he was with the doe the morning before. I grunted at him. He flicked his tail, let me knew he heard, but he didn't bristle. He didn't even slow down. He just kind of kept walking her and smelling her. I grunted one more time. He didn't even react. He just kind of flared. And I, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to make it. I'm going to push him. So I left him alone. I killed him the next evening or in the next morning. So um, in the same general area, but I had to move a stand. We moved it middle of the day and moved it like 40 yards. And I killed him on basically the same, same general area, about 40 yards from where I seen him the day before and uh, killed him in the morning without a doe. And I called him, I, I got him to come in by tickling, you know, the antlers. And uh, he was 215, the five inches broken off. Wow. So what specific, so, what's the specific body language you would need to see to make you say, okay, I'm going to get aggressive and keep calling versus, oh, no, I got to lay off. This isn't the right time. Yeah. Well, so like the, the hunt that's on Whitetail Edge in um, season five where I'm in Kansas, this buck comes in with a doe to a bedding area. <clears throat> I grunt a couple times at him, and he snort wheezes instantly and just flares up like Hulk Hogan. And I knew right then, I'm like, okay, he's, he's mad, and he's pissed off, so I can, I can work this buck. And... We didn't, we didn't get him to come marching right to the tree, but he gave me a 45 yard shot through a window and, you know, I was able to, to pinwheel him. So it's one of those deals where like, if he wouldn't have reacted at all, then I probably wouldn't have kept calling, but I got super aggressive with him and I snort wheezed back. I grunted hard a couple of times and kept after it. And that doe actually started to come towards us and he followed. And then he was snort wheezing at the same time. And then he didn't want to lose her. So he kept up and he thought he was going to get into a fight. You know, he was basically bracing himself to come around those cedars and run into another deer. He ran into something. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, I mean, that, it's just telling, it's just telling their language, you know, being able to read a deer, when to back off, you know, when to let it go. Yep. Yep. I hear you there. They wag their tail. If you, if you call to them and they wag their tail, they've heard you. You know what I mean? They know you're there. And then it's just it's just kind of like a turkey. You just keep feeling them out. You, you need to yelp a little more. Does he gobble or not? Or do you need to heat him up? Or do you need to just back off? You know? Like a turkey that's gobbling every time you call. I lay the pipe to him, buddy. I just keep, you know, and get him to come. Cause it just excites them so much that they just like explode and they come running to where if one's not answering you every time you call, those are the birds that you typically, you just let them know you're there every so often that eventually he's just going to sneak in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a certain Gobble art to it. It's, it really takes some time to kind of learn what that right balance is, when to push it, when not to, how to read the deer. It's, that's an interesting thing. Yeah. No, it is. And I mean, it's, and it's all just a matter of getting out there and trying it. You know, you're going to make mistakes. That's how I learned, you know, 
I learned by watching deer run away. Go, oh, he didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those lessons stick. And I've, yeah, I learned it on a really big one once. So you know, and that probably the biggest deer I would have ever killed in my life. I learned it. And I was, you know, it was like 2004, and I was hunting Illinois, and I'm pretty sure this deer was 240s, and uh, I, I just called too much to it. You know, I got too jacked up on it, and here I thought he wasn't going to come at all. Well, all I did was just set him off to make him look for me. And he came in downwind. And by the time I realized he was there, he was 25 yards behind the tree. He'd snuck in so quiet, trying to sniff me. And I turned around and there he was. Jeez. Yeah. In fact, I didn't even know he was there until I stood up to look at my camera guy and just complain one more time because I felt so stupid <laughs> that I messed it up. And here he was right behind us and we didn't even know it. And this was an hour later. This wow. was an hour after I, what I thought spooked him. And here he came looking for us to bust us. So what's, what's the lesson learned there? Like what was the thing that you thought to yourself afterwards? Oh, I'm, I'm never going to do that again. Or I will definitely do this yeah. other thing again. Well, one is don't ever think just because you called that they're not going to come. Always be looking downwind. Now I really try to set up in spots if I know that it might be a calling situation where a deer has really got to expose himself or really can't get downwind to me without me seeing him. You know, but he can't sneak in the back door, you know, on me. Yeah, like having a pond or creek bottom on their downwind side yeah. or, or an opening. Yep. Yeah. Ravine, anything. Just something to make it harder for him to get downwind of you without you knowing he's doing it. Yep. You know? Yep. All right, Ben. We Unfortunately, we've got to do a, a slightly shorter chat today than I sometimes like to do, and, and I'm really enjoying this, so I hate that we have to do this. But I want to get into one last section here where I want to just – run you through five or six quick kind of rapid fire questions. So just like a one word answer, if you can, and we'll, we'll bounce through these really quick and, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. So are you ready to do that? Yeah. Yep. All right. Does the moon matter to deer movement and would you like put your life on it or would you put a season of hunting on it? Yes or no? Yes. Would you take a 50-yard shot at a whitetail with your bow, yes or no? Yes. If you could only have one of these for the rest of your hunting life, which would it be? A set of rattling antlers or a grunt tube? Rattling antlers. (laughs) That's a tough one, huh? (laughs) Yeah, that Uh, that was a tough one. (laughs) Expandable or fixed-blade broadheads? Expandable. Should you stop a buck with some kind of sound before shooting with a bow? Yes. What would you rather hunt over if you had to choose only one of these options? A rub line or a scrape? Scrape. All right, and here's the last one. It's not so much a rapid-fire question, but it's a little bit of a, a wonky one. Let's say that I am the president of the United States or something like that. And I have control over your hunting privileges. And I'm going to say that you cannot hunt for the next 10 years unless, unless you kill a five and a half year old buck this year. 
So you have to kill a five and a half year old buck this year. I'm only going to give you one day to do it and only one tree to do it in. Which day of the year would you pick? And describe to me that perfect tree to kill this very high stakes buck. Hmm. Only one day of the year, huh? Yeah. Well, then that's going to be, I would have to go late season on a very used food source on one of the coldest days of the year with a tree that is tucked in just enough on their way to the field or to the food source, whether whatever it be that I could find them eating on in those cold days. All right. And if you had so that, to... so that, that would have to be that I would have to pick that day to be somewhere in that January time frame. Okay. I like it. Those late season patterns. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with their gut, you know, because a rut is too, they're too all over the board. You can't, you really can't pinpoint them to where when they're slaves to their stomach is when they're the most patternable. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, Ben, uh, you passed the rapid fire test and uh, I, I enjoyed it. Do you have anything you can tell folks as far as where they can go to uh, follow along with what you're doing or watch your hunts or, or anything else they should keep an eye out from you? Yeah, sure. On So we air on uh, Mossy Oak Go. Um, that's an app that you can download for, you know, your TV, your smartphones, different things like that. Um, we air there. We're on YouTube. Um, Whitetail Edge official on Instagram, Whitetail Edge, you know, on Facebook. We also do Spur Brand. That's where you can get all our Whitetail Edge apparel. Spur Brand is our turkey brand, but it's a really cool uh, clothing line and hat line and stuff. And we even do turkey calls. Um, but you can go to spurbrand.com and that's where you can get Whitetail Edge gear also. And hats and shirts and all that kind of stuff so we need all the followers and views we can get so you know again this i feel very blessed that i've had the life i've had to be able to hunt the deer that i have and you know i'm very humble about it i don't normally talk i can be in a crowd for a long time before people even realize i'm a deer hunter so i think people will enjoy the show the way we try to teach people how to hunt deer um and my biggest thing is is just enjoy it. You know, if it's, if trying to hunt mature deer is driving you crazy, you know, and taking the fun out of it, then get back to reality. You know, like these, I hear these kids talking all the time about being 13, 14 years old and how they're passing up deer and this and that, man, when I was 13, 14, I was killing everything that walked, (laughs) you know, just, just get out there and enjoy mother nature. Those green years of your career will be the ones you remember the most. You know, the, the fresh learning experiences, the mistakes, soak them up because they're God's gifts to helping us learn, you know? Yeah, that's that's great parting advice, a good place to end and, uh, and wise words. So, Ben, thank you for taking the time. I, I've always enjoyed your videos and your hunts, and uh, there's always something new I can learn from you. So, so thanks for sharing this with us yeah. today. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks to you, Mark. I appreciate it. It's been awesome watching you grow in the industry been really cool to follow you and see how you've 
taken your passion and what you've turned it into. And now that you're with Steve doing stuff, I mean, that's just awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Meat eater. Meat eater is my favorite show, dude. That's awesome. I don't watch, I really don't watch TV hardly ever. I don't watch hunting shows. I don't even watch my own, (laughs) but I watch, I watch meat eater because it's, I don't know why I like that guy. And I, I like how he does things and it's just interesting. I think he's got such a cool spin on something different and, he can appeal to everybody. And, you know, so my kudos to Steve Ranella for that. And it's really cool that he's brought you in to kind of help do things. So that's good for both of you. Yeah. Thank you. He's, uh, he's definitely put a a great thing in place here and he's been a a great mentor for a lot of us. So, uh, glad you're enjoying it. Yeah. Yep. All right. Maybe you and Steve need to come hunt Ohio with me sometime. Hey, don't, uh, be careful what you ask for, because before you know it, I'll be knocking on your door. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening. That is a wrap on my conversation with Ben. Uh, Make sure you are doing a couple things in the meantime until our next episode. If you are not already subscribed to our Whitetail Weekly Newsletter, go on over to TheMeatEater.com and sign up for that. That's going to get you all the latest Whitetail content from the Meat Eater team. Uh, Also, make sure you're following me over on Instagram. That is Wired2Hunt is the handle. That way you can see what's happening in my own whitetail world and uh, lots of different updates come in there as well. So with that, uh, I think we can wrap it up. This has been fun. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms I like them because it gives you hand-free calling meaning when you're working a bird up close you can have your gun on your knee finger on the trigger ready to roll and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.